If you want to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 again. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And so let's listen with reverence and awe because these are the words of our God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that um, as we're gathered here this morning and and opening up your word, that you would fill us with your spirit and and help us to behold Jesus uh, in the word this morning. That you would help us to, to grow in our love, our affection for you. That you would help us, Lord, that you would work in us to uh, make us more like Jesus. Help us to have that same mind and help us, Lord, to bow down before him and confess that he is Lord to your glory. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, So one of the ways that Jesus routinely uh, taught uh, throughout the Gospels is uh, in the form of parable. Um, A parable is kind of a short story that that teaches a lesson. It's it's kind of a short story or an analogy that can either make something easier to understand or uh, as often Jesus wanted to make something harder to understand. Uh, So you can kind of go one way or the other in that. And Luke 14, 8 through 11, Jesus tells a parable about being invited to a wedding feast. Uh, and this is a story, it's, it's an analogy for something that he's continually teaching throughout his uh, earthly ministry. Uh, and I'll just go ahead and read it. This is what he says. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may, see, he may see, say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so that's a beautiful and compelling way to teach this. In in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there's an abiding connection between humbling oneself and being exalted, between humbling oneself and being exalted. And it's absolutely antithetical to the way that we would typically think, isn't it? We we would typically think that if if I want to be uh, well-known, if I want to be exalted, then I need to exalt myself. I need to speak well about myself to others. I I need to show off and and show how uh, incredibly um, important I am. 
But I, I, I don't want to humble myself because then that will lead to humiliation and, and degradation. But in the kingdom of God, this order is completely flipped on its head. And, and this kingdom that Jesus has ushered in through his life, death, and resurrection will one day be consummated with his return. Those who humble themselves, those who are humble, are exalted. And those who exalt themselves are humbled. And in no one is this more clearly seen than in Jesus. No one shows this most clearly to us other than the person and work of Jesus. In the great feast, Jesus took the lowest seat. In the great feast, Jesus took the lowest seat at the table. And then he was raised, he was uh, exalted by God and brought to the highest seat. And this is what we looked at in last week's gathering, how, how Jesus humbled himself more than anyone has ever humbled themselves before. We looked at how, how no one has ever started out as high as Jesus did, and no one ended up so low. He descended from glory to Golgotha. He, he dwelled in a state of perfection without any suffering, and he ended up uh, becoming sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He descended from glory to Golgotha. He willingly suffered the greatest humiliation the earth has ever seen. And because of this, God has highly exalted him. Notice the first word in, in verse 9 of Philippians 2 here, uh, the word therefore. So this is something we've talked about before. What's our rule when we see the word therefore? You need to find out what it's there for. That's right. So we need to find out what it's there for. This, this word here is making a solid connection between verses 5 and 8 and verses 9 to 11. It's making the connection between what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this week. It's making the connection between the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. Because Jesus willingly suffered the greatest humiliation anyone has ever seen, he is highly exalted and he is the name above every name. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, focusing on verses 9 to 11 of our text. And we see that, that the big idea here is that Jesus ex is the exalted Lord of all, and God demands that all recognize the same. Jesus is the exalted Lord of all, and God demands that all recognize the same. And so we kind of give a big idea at the beginning of the, the sermons to just, you know, say, if you're going to walk away with one thing, if you hear one sentence from me this morning, hear that. Jesus is the exalted Lord of all, and God demands that all recognize the same. And so our outline we'll be walking through is number one, the exaltation, and number two, the confession. Number one, the exaltation, and number two, the confession. Uh, verse nine, firstly, starting with the exaltation, verse nine says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so God has, has highly exalted Jesus, or, or very literally, super exalted Jesus. Uh, as we looked at the humiliation of Jesus last Sunday, we walked through the several stages of his humiliation. We looked at how, though, how although he was in the form of God, he did not count this equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He, he, that's the first stage. He lowered himself. He took on humanity. And then again, he lowered himself. He took on the form of a servant. And then again, he took on obedience. And then again, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we just followed each of these stages. And now as we come to Christ's exaltation, Paul doesn't go into as much detail uh, regarding this. Instead uh, of, of going into as much detail, he, he simply says, God has highly or super exalted him. 
And so it's, it's kind of apostolic shorthand, the, the Apostle Paul's shorthand uh, for talking about uh, what God did to exalt Jesus after his humiliation. And so as people of the book, as people devoted to the Bible, we want to know what he means here. What does he mean when he say that God highly exalted Jesus? Uh, and so we're just going to walk through this just like we did with the humiliation of Jesus last week. Uh, and so the, the, the exaltation of Jesus is not just some sort of like abstract theoretical thing. Uh, it, it, it is based in, in several concrete historic events, uh, three of which have already happened and one of which we are still waiting for. And so we're just going to walk through these. Uh, first of all, God has highly exalted Jesus on the cross. God has highly exalted Jesus on the cross. Uh, now, you might not think that we should start there, uh, but the scriptures in a few places treat the crucifixion of Jesus as part of his exaltation, his enthroning. Um, of course, in terms of his humiliation, it's the lowest point. It's where he suffers most. It's where he's most uh, humiliated. He humbles himself most, but it's also where he begins his, his, uh, his ascent as, as exaltation uh, as king. Uh, the kingdom of God here, again, flips this on its head for us. It flips our thinking on its head, and it says that there's glory in humility. Uh, the, the kingdom of God turns our way of thinking on its head here. There's power in weakness. There's wisdom in foolishness. There's exaltation in humiliation. And in the cross of Jesus, we see the, the very power, victory, and glory of God. Uh, John, the writer of the gospel, according to John, speaks of the cross this way very clearly. Uh, when you read uh, throughout the gospel, according to John, you continually see Jesus speaking of his hour, speaking of his hour. And you see Jesus mention his hour uh, throughout the book, so starting with John 2.4, when he turns water into wine, he, he talks about his hour. You see uh, in John 7.30 and 8.20 that Jesus avoided arrest because his hour had not yet come. Uh, you, you see in John 13.1, uh, John say that the hour of Jesus had finally come, and there are many more uh, times that, that John uses this word hour to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. He does it over and over again to focus on Christ's mission uh, to, to, on the earth to go to the cross and redeem humanity from sin. But Jesus also speaks of this hour as a time where he will be exalted, or, or uh, the word he uses, glorified. Uh, in John 12, 23, Jesus says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In uh, John 17, 1, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. In John 12, 32, Jesus, continuing to speak about his crucifixion and death, says, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of being lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people unto myself. And the Apostle Paul continues to speak about the exaltation of Christ on the cross uh, when he speaks of the victory that he accomplished on it. In Colossians 2, beginning with verse 13, Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is what we just read or sang about. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing that, he disarmed the rulers. Paul continues, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so it's here 
in this hour that he seems most defeated, that he accomplishes the greatest victory the world has ever seen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame. He silenced the accuser. He triumphed over him. He defeated darkness. He crushed the head of the serpent, and he did it through the bruising of his heel, through the crucifixion and death that he suffered. John Calvin kind of sums all of this up very beautifully, and he says, For the death of the cross, which Christ suffered, is so far from obscuring his high rank that in death, his high rank is chiefly displayed. Since there on the cross, there on the cross, his amazing love to mankind, his infinite righteousness in atoning for sin and appeasing the wrath of God, his wonderful power in conquering death, subduing Satan, and at length, opening heaven blazed with full brightness. Christ is highly exalted on the cross. Next, God highly exalted Jesus in his resurrection. Uh, The apostles, the 12 that were sent out to write the scriptures and lead the church initially, they they continued to show, uh, to draw a sharp contrast uh, between how Jesus was humiliated at the hands of men and how he was exalted by God in his resurrection. You see this very routinely in the apostles' sermons throughout Acts, and and we'll just look at one occasion very quickly in in Acts 3. Uh, And here in Acts chapter 3, uh, in the third chapter of Acts, Peter's outside of the temple in Jerusalem just after uh, healing a crippled man in the name of Jesus, and he's giving his explanation of how this took place, uh, and, and he just launches into a gospel sermon. And so he says, starting with verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So there we see his humiliation at the hands of men, but his exaltation from God. You killed the author of life whom God has raised from the dead. You you did not approve of him and his message and his claims, but God delights in him and overwhelmingly and powerfully approves of all that Jesus taught and claimed and accomplished. The, The resurrection is the divine amen to the person and work of Jesus. It's, it's, it's God saying over Jesus, just like he did at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he proved it. He proved that declaration by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the son of the living God. And he proved it in his resurrection from the dead. No one else has this kind of proof for their claims and their teachings. No one else has been vindicated in this way that Jesus has been vindicated. No one else has the proof that Jesus has. No one else has been raised from the dead. No founder of any religion, no political figure, no one but Jesus. Jesus alone is the resurrected king of all. And this is the central claim of all the claims of Christianity. It's the one on which all the other claims hang. Uh, Some time ago on an Easter holiday, a a news reporter in Australia interviewed an an Anglican bishop. And um, 
I'm not quite sure how they like pick the people that they're going to interview. I'm not sure how they go about that, but I wish that they would go about it in a different way. Uh, so they, they interviewed this man and they, they asked him, uh, what would you do if, if you woke up tomorrow and you found out that Jesus had never uh, risen from the dead, that he's, that he's not alive any longer and they found his body, he's, he's dead. Uh, would you still be a Christian? And the bishop replied, yes, because he has risen in my heart. Uh, and just so you know, that's wrong. Like the Apostle Paul pumps the brakes on that one in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and says, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. Christianity is completely futile if Christ is not raised from the dead, if he is not alive now and forevermore. Christianity is completely futile. But the good news is that God did raise Jesus from the dead. And he's given us proof. We have eyewitness accounts of this. People who have put their eyewitness accounts of this in writing, and, and not only have they done that, but they have suffered torture and humiliation and, and, and suffering and death for these eyewitness accounts. The, the apostles put these in writing. They put their, their accounts of this in writing and then suffered for them immensely. So we can have confidence in this, that God has exalted Jesus by raising him from the dead. This is our, our joy, our peace, our assurance. It's, it's how we know we can trust Jesus. It's how we know that we can believe what he taught. It's how we know that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish because God highly exalted him by raising him from the dead. Next, God highly exalted Jesus in the ascension. Now, the ascension is uh, part of the work of Christ that usually gets put on the back burner. People don't pay as much attention to it. Uh, but, but it's very important as you read the New Testament, you see um, the writers of the Gospels and the epistles refer to it over and over again. Uh, Peter refers to it in his sermons many times throughout Acts, and uh, particularly in Acts 2 in Jerusalem, he says that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. Exalted at the right hand of God. The ascension is where Jesus is enthroned. He's given the name above every name. He's been, had that name bestowed upon him. He, he, he's not just the resurrected king uh, over sin and death and Satan, which he is, but even more, he is the exalted king over the entire universe because God has exalted him at his right hand. He has given him the throne in heaven. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So this is the claim that Jesus is the king of all, all things, every nation, every ruler, every authority, whether spiritual or physical, all are under his authority, his dominion, his power. This is why the, the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus where he sends out the church and the spirit to fill the nations with his glory and his fame. He, he, he sends out the church and the spirit to gather the nations to come to him because he's rightful king over all of them anyways. The, the church is sent out to declare Jesus in every city, in every nation, in every people. 
to tell them that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why the church exists. This is literally why the church exists. We're called and commissioned by God himself to take this invisible reign of King Jesus and make it visible in the earth. This is why we're planting a church here because the city of Dayton needs to know that Jesus is king. He is their rightful ruler. Jesus is Lord. Our city, our city needs that reality made visible in its midst. And this is also, uh, on another note, why uh, we don't put our ultimate hopes in political uh, figures or, or in the right candidate being collect, uh, 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 elected to sit in the White House. Like whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein or anyone else gets elected to sit in the White House, Jesus is still on the throne and he's not going anywhere. So we don't put our ultimate hope in that because Jesus is seated in heaven. His dominion, as Daniel 7.14 tells us, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Because of this, the early church did not put their hope in Caesar and in Rome. And it's a good thing that they didn't because Caesar and Rome are dead, but Jesus is alive and well and his kingdom is increasing always. And so while we appropriately care about the political process and who gets elected, we're not going to be distraught over who ends up there. We're, we're not going uh, to fight wars over this. We're not going to we're not going to enter into a culture war and, and, and try to uh, fight with others about the right candidate because Jesus is the right candidate and God has elected him already. So right now, Jesus is sovereignly and graciously ruling over the earth on his throne in heaven. God has highly exalted Jesus in his ascension. And then lastly, very quickly, because we need to move forward, the last part of this exaltation, it's, it's one that hasn't taken place Yet we're still awaiting this. These uh, previous three ways uh, are, are all the ways that God has exalted Jesus. And, and this last one is how God will exalt Jesus. And so God will exalt Jesus when he returns and his return to earth. This is what the Apostle Paul is speaking to uh, when he says in Acts 17, or, or here in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This, this has not happened yet, but there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return in glory to judge. There's coming a day when everyone will bow the knee to him and confess that he is Lord. Right now, Jesus is Lord and he is king, but when he returns, everyone will recognize that fact. God will finally and fully vindicate Jesus when he returns in glory. God will exalt Jesus in his return. Now, one of the things I, I, I hope you've seen as we've walked through the work of Christ over the last two Sundays is that he is just utterly and completely beautiful. That, that there is no one as beautiful as Jesus is. There's, there's no one with beauty quite like him. He's, he's utterly unique. There's, there's no one like Jesus. Jo Jonathan Edwards, I love how he described Jesus in his humiliation and exaltation. He said that Jesus is full of diverse excellencies. Diverse excellencies. He's humble and meek and lowly, yet he's exalted and glorious and supreme. And in him uh, is God and man 
complete, fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. There's no one else in the universe like that. He's both God and man, and in him, God became undignified for us, but man was highly exalted for us. In him, God suffered the lowest degradation for us, but man took on the highest majesty for us. There's no one person like him in heaven and on earth. He's utterly unique. He's, he's beautiful beyond words. Jesus is, is completely stunning, and I, I, I love uh, the words of Charles Spurgeon describing Jesus here. He says, beautiful, beautiful are thou. Jesus is so emphatically lovely that words must be doubled, strained, yea, exhausted before he can even be described. Among the children of man, many have through grace been beautiful in character, yet each of them had a flaw. But in Jesus, we behold every feature of a perfect character in harmonious proportion. He is lovely everywhere and from every point of view. And because he is so lovely and excellent and unique, so beautiful, God demands that we recognize the same. God has highly exalted Jesus so that all will respond in worship with this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. We'll close here in just a moment. As we just noted, and and we'll note again, uh, this confession that Jesus is Lord is one that that, uh, one day all will make. Uh, Jesus is, is Lord. One day all will recognize that fact, that Jesus is the exalted Lord. That confession will resound throughout the universe then, but even now, as, as Jeremy Begbie said, we echo that uh, from the future. We, we, that, that, that's an echo from the future. We're declaring that right now. That, that will resound one day, then it will, but now it resounds in our homes and in our worship gatherings. It was made last week by Josh and Emma before they were baptized. It's what we confess when we come to this table, which we're about to do in just a moment. It's, it's the declaration that God makes over Jesus, the bestowal of the name Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that's, that's the name, by the way, that, that Paul is speaking of here, Lord. At this name, everyone will bow and confess, Jesus is Lord, Kyrios, which is what they translated Yahweh, the name of God uh, in the Old Testament to, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul is making a direct reference here to Isaiah 45, 23, when Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jesus is God, exalted over all, the highest rank above all and before all, the preeminent Lord. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one higher than Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And this confession, really, it's more than a mere statement. You have to understand that this church in Philippi, this confession cost them something. They were heavily persecuted. They were a heavily persecuted church. You have to understand that the writer of this letter, Paul, this cost him something. He's writing this letter from prison, making this confession that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They've been tested by this over and over and over again. Ask the question, who is Lord? 
Caesar or Jesus? So every year, once a year, uh, every Roman citizen was called by the empire to come and make a pledge of allegiance to Caesar. They would be called upon to, to come and confess, Caesar Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. They, they were called to do this in order to unite the Roman Empire and, and emperor worship and, and, and to bow down uh, to Caesar and, and swear allegiance to him. And so Paul knew, the church in Philippi knew that every year, every knee in the Roman Empire would come and bow down to Caesar and, and every citizen would take a pinch of incense and drop it on, on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Every citizen except for Christians. Christians did not bow the knee. They did not worship Caesar as divine. They worship Christ to the glory of God the Father. They confessed Christos, Kyrios. Christ is Lord. Some would even be killed for this confession because in saying that Christ is Lord, they were saying that indeed Caesar is not Lord. Years later, there's a story that captures this well. Years later, there was a man named Polycarp he was a pastor in, in Smyrna, which would, it would be in modern-day Turkey. And, and he was hiding out in the countryside uh, due to persecution. He was old, 86 years old, finishing his years in ministry, just praying day and night for the churches throughout the world. And as he was hiding in a particular home, uh, he found out that the, the governing authorities were nearby, and they were searching for him, and they'd almost found him. And so he, he fled to another location. And when the authorities came to the house that he w- had been at previously, the, the two young men there, uh, they, were, they ended up being tortured into giving uh, the authorities information about Polycarp, and, and they found Polycarp just a short time later. And after his arrest, he was taken into an arena, which was kind of the common practice uh, for, for executions at that time. And, and when Polycarp entered into the arena, the crowd roared with just hatred. They hated him. And the proconsul asked Polycarp if he was indeed Polycarp, and he said he was. And after he affirmed, they, they attempted to persuade him to deny Jesus and confess Caesar as Lord. The proconsul said to him, uh, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The proconsul said, swear by Caesar's fortune. And Polycarp responded, you flatter yourself if you hope to persuade me. In all truth, I solemnly declare to you, I am a Christian. The proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. And Polycarp said, call them. As for us Christians, when we change, it's not from good to bad. It is splendid to pass through evil into God's justice. The proconsul said, if you despise animals, I will have you burned. And Polycarp responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And so the crowd collected wood and and bundles of sticks. (laughs) I love that. He's so punk rock. (laughs) He just undresses and takes off his shoes, 86-year-old man. 
and they went to go nail him to the stake. Listen to this. He told them that they didn't need to nail him to the stake. He would hold on. He wasn't planning on running away. And so they lit the fire, and as the fire started to lick up on his feet, he prayed this prayer, Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the grace of knowing thee, God of angels and powers, the whole creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee for counting me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs, and drink of the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. I praise thee for all thy mercies. I bless thee. I glorify thee through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thyself and the Holy Spirit be glory, both now and forever. Amen. And so this wasn't just a statement to Polycarp. It was the confession of his life. It is what led to his death. He, he was banking his life in eternity on this statement being true, this confession being true, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, that means no one else is. Caesar is not Lord. Polycarp, as he well knew, is not Lord. And so he was not willing to uh, renounce Christ uh, to, to avoid suffering and pain. He, he well knew that there's no Lord except the Lord Jesus. And so in this moment, he denied himself in order to confess that Jesus is Lord. And God demands that we do the same. And for those that do now, for those that do bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord joyfully now, they will share in the everlasting exaltation of Jesus. will reign with him on the new heavens and the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. But for those that don't confess the same, they will still confess it, but not in joy, in mourning, and in anger when he returns. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's coming a day when Jesus will return and everyone will be forced to recognize this fact, that he's the king of the universe. He is now and will be then. The difference is everyone will recognize that fact. Everyone will recognize him as Lord. When Jesus returns in glory as our exalted Lord, everyone will be judged based on what they do with Jesus on this side of his return. The Apostle Paul says in a sermon in Acts 17 and verses 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom, ha whom he has appointed. And of this, he has, given all, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the question is, what do you do with Jesus now? You can confess his name in delight now, or you will confess it in mourning on that day. What do you do now? Everyone will bow. Everyone throughout history 
will bow. Everyone. So th- th- there's not any, anyone that has ever existed. Caesar will bow the knee to Jesus. Buddha and, and Mohammed and Confucius, Moses will bow the knee to King Jesus. Every president who has ever sat in the Oval Office will bow the knee to King Jesus. Every dictator, every angel, every fallen angel, your parents, your, your, your siblings, your, your spouse, your children, all will bow the knee to King Jesus. You will bow the knee to King Jesus. The question is, when? You can bow in delight now or you will bow in mourning then. The question is, what will you do now? And the good news is that God has appointed, that that the one God has appointed to judge, Jesus, the one God has appointed to judge, graciously took our judgment upon himself on the cross. The one who is now exalted and will be exalted in that day suffered the most humiliating judgment on the cross for us so that if we turn and humble ourselves before him now, we will share in his exaltation then. For those that exalt themselves now, though, against him, they will be humbled. But those who humble themselves now will be exalted then. And because Jesus humbled himself to the lowest point, God has highly exalted him as Lord over all and demands that we all recognize the same, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, um, it's, a, it's a sobering thing to remember. I just confess that I often don't think about the coming judgment. I don't think about uh, the return of Jesus. I, I, I don't think about often what that means for my worship now and, and for the way that I live on mission now, the way that I love and serve and humble myself now. But I ask for, for myself and for each and every person here, would you remind us of that often? Would you remind us of the coming judgment? But would you also comfort us with the reality that our judgment day, if we trust in Jesus, has already happened on the cross? And that his righteousness covers us now so that we are declared righteousness with his very own righteousness. So that you, the just, can also be the justifier of the ungodly. Lord, would you remind us of that beautiful and wonderful reality? And would you lead us then also to taste and see that the Lord is good, that Jesus is just beautiful, and that we will never exhaust his beauty, that we will never uh, run short of words to describe him. For all of eternity, we will behold the Lamb who is slain, and the lion who has conquered and will worship him and confess that he is Lord to your glory. Lord, help us as we go from here to not just be hearers of the word only, but doers also. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.